0: If we assemble a puzzle of funds uh, that write a bunch of tickets in different geographies, different sectors, with different narratives, uh, we are going to be able to create an index representative of early-stage venture capital itself, and that's going to be that 50% of the portfolio that captures that uh, 25% average IRR uh, that, that the asset class produces. Also, since we're very active LPs, like we go to, to battle as alongside our fund managers, helping their portfolio companies, helping them get LPs. And, and we also get access to their deal flow. We share deal flow with them. We get to pick their brains. So it's a, a much more value add than just writing a ticket and having that index.
1: Well, Fernando from Invariantus, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. We were uh, introduced by, by the wonderful Jamie Road. Thank you, Jamie, for the introduction. So, Fernando, a, a lot of interesting things to talk about today, uh, but welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. Thank you very
0: much for having me. It's an honor, man. I've seen the roster of uh, people that come on your show, and I hope I, I do your listeners justice.
1: Uh, well, I appreciate that and appreciate the kind words. So let's start. You started the first venture capital firm in Guatemala. How did that come about? Yeah, well, it was uh, a,
0: an ongoing effort. You know, By that time in 2015, I had worked at a multifamily office managing the proprietary trading portfolio of that multifamily office and with my partner, who is the owner of that multifamily office, we saw that uh, there was a need and a gap that needed to be filled. Uh, people wanted access to the asset class, some success cases uh, like uh, Luis Bonan uh, who a watermelon who then went to the US and started Duolingo, now public, they captured the imagination of the public and people wanted access to, to another asset class and uh, by the same token founders were knocking on the family office door looking for funding and we didn't have a proper platform to serve those needs. So we said, why don't we look leverage on what we've done so far and start Guatemala's uh, first capital fund. And by that time, uh, we had uh, amassed uh, a portfolio of uh, about 170-ish alternative investments in private debt placements private equity venture capital direct deals etc through about a decade or a little bit longer than a decade so we said man we have we have this awesome network of people why don't we start a proper fund and then serve the needs and the wants of, of the investors and founders alike
1: you mentioned the success of Duolingo. I think it's a it's a wonderful thing how startup ecosystems bloom from these several successes. In Silicon Valley, you've had generational companies such as Google and then later Uber and Facebook that has really sprung these angel communities and sprung this excitement. Tell me about how that happened in Guatemala. It, a relatively new market to to venture. The local
0: ecosystem is quite young. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's a, a vibrant. Even at the beginning of our conceptual phase as a fund, we said let's invest in Guatemala. But we quickly realized that the pipeline isn't there uh, for a fund to be dedicated exclusively for a Guatemalan investments. So so we started looking elsewhere. The final spark came by way of uh, our third partner in the fund. That first fund who is a mentor in the Teal Fellowship. And he said why don't you come and look at what these guys are building in the teal fellowship maybe we can incorporate some of those best practices in our own ecosystem here and uh, as luck would have it we jumped on a plane in uh, mid-2015 and went to that teal summit and it just so happened that mike gibson and Danielle Strackman, who ran the fellowship for his first four years were announcing the start of their own fund called 1517 Fund to capture the ecosystem of this out of college kids that they had invested in and we said after hanging out with them, uh, getting to see how they interacted with founders and the sharp eye they had for picking people for the fellowship. I mean, out of those 80 young people, because uh, it's 20 a year, 36 have started companies. And among those, you had the likes of Vitalik Buterin, who started Ethereum, or Austin Russell, who, who took Luminar, a uh, LiDAR sensor company, public and founder of, of um, Figma as well. And we said, man, what we have to do is invest in them as. Uh, LPs and also do directs. And that's where the idea of our hybrid m- model was born. And uh, it's the, the formula we've done almost copy paste from our first fund to today. Half of our funds we invest in other funds, half in direct tickets. We're anchored on, on great funds.
1: I think it's a really interesting case study and really brilliant uh, way to find product market fit. You realize that Guatemala did not have the n- enough deal flow to satisfy entire venture strategy. But you didn't stop there, and you focus on finding product market fit for the market. Tell me about the ultra high net worth and the family office community in Guatemala. What are they currently investing in?
0: You'd be surprised, but you'd be pressed to find people that do something other than buy an apartment or uh, park their money in a in a one year deposit and get that fixed income, uh, and that is about it. So it was a, a, an uphill battle trying to you know get convince them to participate in an asset class such as VC that has its own risks, its liquidity profile, and uh, we almost uh, banged our head against the door on those first pitches. But again, this is where the 50% that we invest in other funds came into play because it was a way, if you will, to hedge the performance of our own fund by investing in other funds and then with a high degree of certainty, we're pretty sure that we're gonna return that fifty percent of the portfolio with gains. And then the other half we can deploy into the RECS to our best judgment, co investing with the funds that we are piecing or sourcing deals on our own. But it was a strong selling piece, like like telling what the Guatemalan very conservative investor you know, look, this is how we're going about it. You're gonna have a very distributed investment. In multiple funds, each fund with 30 to 40 companies, the, we're not going to be overexposed to a sector, a geography, a company. And with a high degree of certainty, we're going to get at least that 50% of the money back in
1: your hands. I know you subscribe to, to the Jamie Road philosophy. She's one of the great philosophers yeah. in, in the limited partner universe. Tell me about your philosophy and tell me how you marry that philosophy with your customers, which is essentially the ultra high net worth and the family offices in, in Guatemala and abroad.
0: We subscribed to to jamie and and steve's uh, uh, power law distribution strategy and and much much like them i mean they they were even part inspiration Uh, we met them about three years into uh, our our first fund but they they validated what we had done like uh, through different uh, mental frameworks we came to the same conclusion so then when we met uh, you know it was quite a, a fun talk and it just so happens that they were also LPs in 1517 and we, we hadn't met until three years after we committed to that fund, so, so we said, oh, these, these these people are, are like-minded. We believe, much like them, that if we assemble a puzzle of funds eh, that write a bunch of tickets in different geographies, different sectors, with different narratives, eh, we are gonna be able to create an index representative of early stage venture capital itself. And that's going to be that 50% of the portfolio that captures that uh, 25% average IRR uh, that, that the asset class produces. Uh, and also, since we're very active LPs, like we go to to battle uh, as alongside our fund managers, uh, helping their portfolio companies, helping them get LPs. And, and we also get access to their deal flow we share deal flow with them, we get to pick their brains. So it's a, a much more uh, value add than just writing a ticket and having that index. We also uh, get that value add on the direct side of
1: things. Today's episode is sponsored by Badaw Insurance Group. Badav Insurance Group is run by my close friend, Amit Badav, who insures me both personally and at the corporate level. Most people are not aware of the inherent conflicts in insurance where insurance agents are incentivized to send their clients to the most expensive option. Amit has always been an incredible partner to me and 10X Capital, driving down our fees considerably while providing a premium solution. I'm proud to personally endorse Amit, and I ask that you consider using Badav Insurance Group for your next insurance need, whether it be DNO, cyber, or even personal car and home insurance. You could email Amit at amit at luxstr.com. That's A H M E T at lux-str.com. Thank you. The co-invest is both a way for you guys to juice your returns, but also be a value-added partner to your GPs. But but let me push back a little bit. You mentioned 25% IRR. I've looked at Jamie's numbers and the index approach, and those are the numbers. But is your essential trade-off, are you giving up some of the upside? Are you ever going to have a 10x fund by doing the strategy? And is that the inherent trade-off in your strategy? Good question.
0: And it is a trade-off. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to have a 10X fund, maybe. I mean, if we uh, take a look at our first fund and uh, our biggest position was the commitment into 1517 fund and that fund itself is clocking about a 7X DVpi ish uh, and already distributed about the 3X. With that and a couple of directs, we could be a 10X fund. But what we are striving to do is not be the 10x fund but be a consistent vintage after vintage fund that gives investors that are already uh, shaky with the asset class a good experience with the asset class so that they continue to add it as part of the portfolio and that's our way of evangelizing our own uh, investors in the region and people in general in the region about the asset so, so we, it is a trade-off, but it's one we're willing to take in exchange for smoother
1: results. I think that's a trade-off that, that is wise. In terms of, you're, you're in some of my favorite emerging managers. Tell me about how you go about choosing an emerging manager.
0: One part of the framework is that they fit within that puzzle of funds. Like 1517, they invest, as a sector agnostic fund, but they invest in people outside of the college system. That's one way to go about it. But then we also invest in uncorrelated fund, uh, a de Deshpande's uh, infrastructure software fund. He has a completely different way to go about it. And you're going to see very little overlap within the two. Uh, add another uh, puzzle, a uh, piece to the puzzle, a uh, hustle fund. They invest in execution speed and write a bunch of, of tickets, maybe over 125, 150 tickets, and then graduate them if they execute accordingly to a hedge position and ultimately to a core position, completely way to go about it. But then we also have investments in Latin America, like 500 startups, Latin American fund, and they invest in the companies that go through their program. Well, there's a different geography right there. I wouldn't have two funds that do the same thing in a a sector or a a geography or a narrative so that's one piece of it another one of course is fund size we prefer emerging managers funds that are usually under 150 million in assets you know I was i was looking at our average fund size of funds that we've invested in and it comes to about 121 million is the average fund size of the funds that we collaborate with another one is that we get a direct uh, access to the GPS. I mean, these are relationships that uh, almost go beyond a, a just a transactional relationship. Um, it, it brings me to: Are you familiar with the Dunbar number? Uh, have you heard about that?
1: Yeah, the amount of people you can manage. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's about 150 stable relationships. Like uh, correlating the size of a primary brain to humans. But then the the same uh, number also says that you have uh, uh, five uh, core people that you have a relationship and about uh, 10 to 12 more than that are the ones that you uh, can fully trust. Those 12 apostles, if you will. And every time we invest, we have to know that there's a potential that this manager will be one of those 12 like uh, Mike and Danielle from 1517, we talk on a daily basis, we joke. Uh, we, I had a shoulder procedure and had to take do in, uh, in the US, and I recovered it at, at Mike's house, uh, uncorrelated with Salil. We just met, uh, went to the Bay Area, and we meet for wines and philosophize. We have to have that direct access to the GPs to collaborate professionally, but also uh, to develop a, a closer relationship. Also, co-invests are uh, important to us because, because we do value that co-investment. It's hard enough to generate deal flow being here in Guatemala. And so, so that co-investment piece is a definite value add and something that we look for. And finally, I mean, it's just uh, maybe it's a, a cliche, but much like investing in direct tickets and founders, you invest in, in funds in the gp and you somewhat develop a, a, a pattern recognition if you will and, and i think this was developed throughout the 10 to 12 years that we managed that multi-asset class portfolio yeah, ended up investing in 174 different vehicles so we screened an order of magnitude above that and and you start seeing oh man i invested in this gp uh, uh, for this reason and it proved itself in results, uh, a mix out of all those criteria. And that's about how how we go about picking the funds.
1: Let's double click on that because there's a lot of people, a lot of brilliant people such as yourself that maybe five, 10 years back, they're starting to invest in venture. What is it that smart people get wrong about investing in emerging managers? One mistake
0: we made in, in the investment on one fund, it was that they had a letter of intent for a big LP, and they were anchoring their whole show on that letter of intent uh, that was a, a, an invest, a, a commitment going to be made into their fund by, by a very well-renowned BC fund and they raised some commitments with anchoring their pitch on, on that their strategy was sound they were good managers but at the end of the day this particular uh, LP ended up yanking that commitment out of the table and we ended up Being almost a majority owner of a very small fund that, without the scale that they were they set out to raise, now they can execute their strategy. So I guess one thing we do when it's the first time we invest in an, an emerging manager is we wait at least after the first or second close, so that we know that there's enough volume for them to operate in. now this is not the case with our legacy positions like uh, take, take for example 1517 or or 500 startups if I, if I were to look into my cover there's a, a t-shirt that 500 latin america uh, did for us that is uh, we were first money in their current vintage we, we know how they work and, and in that case since it's a legacy position we do go in uh, as first money into these funds it's another type of thing that that we would do to add value to our to our fund managers But that would be a a piece that I would like to share, like wait until the first or second close to just to know that they are indeed going to get the the mass on the volume to operate and execute the strategy as they planned.
1: I think that's important to have a minimum viable fund size, meaning that you have enough of dry powder in order to have uh, execute on your strategy, whether that be certain level of diversification, certain round sizes, certain check sizes, I think that's critical. What other benefits do Anchor investors, Anchor LPs have for non-Anchor LPs? You
0: know, we get to share deal flow. We get to pick brains on sector-specific managers on deals that maybe we don't have the the precise uh, technological knowledge on how to evaluate a biotech investment for example we're not biochemists but we know we can uh, turn to one of our funds and they do have a specialist and they can we can validate a cross reference a deal within our own pipeline with them maybe we introduce that deal to them and we end up co-investing in that deal A recent deal that we invested in, it was because this company was raising a Series B and the Series B investor that was leading the round stuck their elbows out and brought out egregious pay-to-play provisions. So what we ended up doing to protect the position of the fund that we're all piecing is writing a direct ticket from our fund and also raising an SPV into that company so that the affiliated uh, amount protected our funds pro rata and uh, reduced that the potential dilution with the pay pay provision. So what they got out of that is they kept the, their, uh, their undiluted position. We got access to a very great deal. The founder was happy because he kept his early investors happy and, and undiluted. And uh, it's a win, 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 like it's a
1: virtuous cycle. I think that should be in the dictionary under LP value add do a direct and syndicated investment in order to protect your funds position. That's something That's something new I've never heard. That That's amazing. But you did mention a biotech fund and being able to diligence non-technology opportunities. So if the biotech fund was to go in reverse and to bring you a co-invest, how do you go about diligencing something like that? And are you even able to make uh, investments beyond the core competencies of, of the, the three uh, partners? We do on a regular basis. I mean,
0: most of our investments t- tend to be a B2B SaaS company, something that we can understand and digest much easier. But it has been the case that the, the investments that are tracking better have been hard science companies. Case in point, uh, Luminar, which which is a lighter sensor than went public. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lambda Labs, which is a... a infrastructure processing company that tends to the processing needs for for ai and deep learning they give their services to hyperscalers uh, on the cloud like amazon google etc that's an something that perhaps we wouldn't have had the core competencies to do a proper due diligence but that's where this vetted network of trust comes in not only could i get introduced to that deal by one of our fund managers but i can pick another manager's brain or two on, on and come to a more well-informed conclusion with three different sets of eyes looking at this plus our own judgment.
1: Yeah. So let's double click on that and have some generalized learnings. I think a lot of GPs send co-invest and it kind of goes into a black box and then the LP comes back and says yes or no. So let's let's uncover that. So I send you a co-invest. What is this process for, for evaluating that co- co-invest? What is the timeline and anything else you could expand?
0: As the typical fund manager will tell you, like we look at, at, at things like market sizing has to be a massive market. Uh, the team, they have to have the technical capacity to execute. The product has to be an order of magnitude better than anything that's out there. A uh, good understanding of the unit economics and if the valuation makes sense. But then we, we, we tend to add, you know, Little little nuances there, like for example, is, is it a differentiated technology where there's a, a an urgent need or or forcing function, and, and then that's there's something non-obvious about it, like why isn't everybody doing this? And this particular set of opportunities gives the founder a sort of a breathing room to to build out a, a monopoly franchise, and it's not necessarily a technical mode, but but you know that type of thing that's contrarian about it. Like we've been impregnated with the funds that we invest in. Each of them has their own particular uh, uh, styles, and we, we lend from them and mix them into our own. Uh, another thing we look for, uh, thinking about 1517, they like hyperfluency in a founder. that The founder is able to dumb down the complex theme and explain it as if you were talking to a five-year-old or that the founder has a self-sustaining motivation because it's money that he's after. I mean, this is gonna come five, six, seven years into the future. You gotta have some other driver there. And then we mix all this criteria and decide if we're gonna write a ticket or not. That's
1: how we go about it. We talked offline, you're incredibly uh, direct and transparent. So I'm gonna ask you a very direct and transparent question. What percentage of the decision is made on a new lead coming in for the first time? You know, let's say you have Andresa and you have Sequoia, you have Pick Your Top Decile Fund. How much of a signal is that and how much of your decision making is based on the lead alone?
0: Try not to get influenced by the fact that a brand name flagship fund is in the deal or not. It's it's nice, but I mean, in, in the real world, it's not a guarantee that that company is going to be better or worse. What is nice is that you have a fund in there that could help you lead the subsequent round. That's something that's powerful and useful for that company. And we we value it that mind frame more than the fact that it's like a, a brand name fund in the cap table. Nice to have, but not something that is a must for us. Most of the deals we do are done within the universe of this emerging manager community. And uh, I, I value more if one of the funds that we're all piecing is participating in the deal than if a, a flagship branding fund is participating in the deal because I know how this these managers think work and their track record and, and how they go about business.
1: I think it's one of the most under leveraged part of the ecosystem. You mentioned talking to fifteen seventeen on a daily basis and having staying with them when you were rehabilitating that's also a new new use case but how what is the best practices how should GPs interact with LPs and how should LPs interact with GPs what's a good way to build a relationship between the two parties
0: That's up to the GP I think I mean if I, if I look at it from the standpoint of us and our LPs we have a lot of LPs in different sectors here in Latin America and we try to be close to them as you know Latin Americans were in love with WhatsApp so we are open to all our LPs For a whatsapp message we uh, send quarterly reports we uh, do events but but we're approachable we're open we're an email or call or whatsapp message away and every time for example we we also we are proactively reaching out to them case in point one of our portfolio companies job excel what they do is they incorporate video into a hiring processes like web-based video hiring experience Uh, we reached out to one of our uh, LPs, because he is in the uh, BPO sector, and we ended up getting that particular company, Telus, as a client, and it was their second-paying corporate client. And then from here, Telus hired them as Telus Global, our LP that we reached out to. He's happy because he added value to one of the the portfolio companies of the fund that he's an LP in. The founder is happy because he got that paying customer, and. Uh, so you, you proactively go about being open and approachable to your LPs. But I think that's that GP's job more, more than the LP itself. In our case, we do a hassle, our GPs, uh, like picking their brain and because because uh, I think it's up to the GP.
1: So that's up to the GP. So, what should the role of an LPAC be? Is it analogous to a board? What are some best practices around LPACs, and what should LPACs not be doing? Yeah,
0: LPACs are are sounding board for for when like unusual uh, decisions. Should I do a follow-on investment of, on a company from my from the previous vintage? Is, is it ethical or not? But but an, an LPAC, pretty much, I think its job should be being there for when there's this type of situation more than getting in the way of how the gp manages his fund that, that should be a, the the, the LPAC's job being a sounding board for when sticky issues arise
1: in terms of latin american lps how should gps interact with latin american lps what are some idiosyncrasies that one should be aware of when raising capital in the region, when building relationships in the region,
0: key point is that Latin American investors are very conservative. The more you can ground the concepts of VC to to the reality of a very conservative investor, that's one thing. Frame it as if it in, in, as a portfolio construction exercise for them. Like, look, I, I don't know how prevalent this is when you pitch to U.S. investors, and over this is relevant or not. But if if you tell a Latin American investor, look, you have this amount of assets. This is your company that where you generated your wealth. You have this apartment, which is real estate. You have this accounts. Maybe you have some stocks, et cetera. You have no VC exposure. You should have that at least 5%, 10% exposure to the asset class because it performs and compounds at a higher rate. And it will be complementary and maybe not even correlated to the rest of your assets. And you can also distribute that risk geographically outside of your home country and that's kind of how we we go about it uh, in our pitches to our LPs and they receive that message well and another thing is that there's a tax advantages for example take Guatemala as an example we we are a Guatemalan investor Uh, our fund is domiciled in Cayman Islands and uh, if we invest in the U.S. we're non-U.S. investors So uh, that investment doesn't have a capital gains tax on it. And then automotive jurisdiction doesn't pursue any gains that you generate outside of the geography. So basically uh, every exit or distribution that we get is uh, tax free. So that's another important thing. Each country has its own tax considerations, but that's the case, at least for Mexico and Central America.
1: I think taxes, however, not sexy, is one of the biggest driver of returns. Of course, in the United States, we have qualified small business stock, which... Essentially, if a company has raised less than $50 million, uh, oftentimes the gains are tax-free both on a state and a federal basis, depending on the state. But most states do comply with that federal tax code. On the other end, you have LPs. You have a new region, Latin America, that is accessing venture more aggressively. Outside of investing into Invariantis, which I think would be a great way to access the venture asset class, what other best practices do you have for Latin American LPs in order to access the top U.S. managers? One thing to avoid is that,
0: and this is something that I've seen recurrently, is that the way Latin America typical investor wants to access VCs, they go directly into a company and, and maybe it's a local company. And the chances for success are small as hard as it is. For BC in general, I think within Latin America, there's even more obstacles for getting uh, an exit. There's less liquidity, there's less uh, large companies willing to do a merger and acquisition, the stock market is robust. So if they do a direct deal and it goes sour, and they usually have seen that they they write too large a ticket, you become completely uh, disenchanted with the asset class. So I would definitely point people towards getting that first taste of BC through a fund. And I mean, the the ecosystem isn't that big in Latin America in general, and at least our focus is Central America and Mexico. That's where our our network is the strongest. And if you give us a call, I could tell you what funds we participate with, what funds in Mexico you should look at. And uh, there's about a handful of them that are good managers that have track record, so it isn't that hard to to narrow it down to to good investors that have track record. Now in the in the US it's it's more complex, it's harder I think. That's that's our job, that's what we bring to the table that we've screened and, and created this relationships through over a decade of being in the game, and we have selected and have our, our way of finding this emerging managers. It, in the US. But within Latin America, I think it's pretty clear. It's not that hard. Like you have 500 startups again, you got NASCA, you got the uh, wall of uh, NXTP Ventures in Argentina and other players. But just with those that I named, you have top people in the
1: game. I want to highlight something that you said, which is a very common mistake uh, that individuals that come into venture capital make, which is concentrate their investment to a few companies. The reason LPs have that intuition is because it tends to work in other industries such as buyout, such as credit. But with the loss ratio being what it is in venture capital, in many ways, venture capital is both the greatest and the worst performing asset class uh, in the world. Jamie Rode summed it up in episode 13 really nicely, where the median return in venture is 10%, which you might say 10%, not terrible, but it's actually a pretty terrible return when you think about the illiquidity of the asset class. But the mean return is 50%, percent five zero, And what differentiates the median from the mean? And there's only one thing that you could really control, and that is the diversification of your portfolio. So if you have a portfolio of 5 of 10, you're almost guaranteed to get the median. If you have a portfolio of 200, you're almost guaranteed to get the mean or close to the mean. So it's very important to look at your portfolio, whether it's via funds that access many different asset classes, or whether you individually build an asset portfolio of 200 direct investments. I do not recommend that direct investments is a very sophisticated skill set. Just to give you a sense, many institutions take five years before starting their direct investment program. And these are the top endowments, top institutions in the world. But I would very much caution people from making one or two investments. It's better to start with a fund and start to learn and build up your book from there. And after several years, start to build up your direct investing platform
0: completely agree I subscribe to 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 what you just said and to and to Jamie's Church of diversification as well and and it's uh it's something that that's worked well like for example some of our LPS uh, after we've given them a, a good taste with our first fund that that now it's, it's fully returned about 1 144 times with, with four exits they, they got that first success case in BC then participated in the second fund and then they come at us and approach us and ask us uh, questions, and uh, they pay close attention to our reports. And about maybe five or six of them are already angel investors themselves now, eight years after writing their first check into uh, our first fund. And uh, I guess that's something that makes us proud. It's part of what we set out to do, which is help out the local ecosystem. If this is the way we're gonna go about it, then this is gonna be how we're gonna help instead of investing directly in, in local founders, which we do by the way, but it's a small sample of, of, of our direct.
1: In many ways, venture capital is like any product and you want to deliver a magical experience to the customer as quickly as possible. You want to close that loop. Uber famously, or maybe infamously, when they were starting out and a customer would take their first ride This is something I know from from direct feedback from people at Uber. They would cancel everybody else's Ubers and drive the best car to that first customer because they want to make sure that the first experience that that customer had was magical. I think it's brilliant. It's somewhat controversial, but I think you want the same thing in venture capital. And the problem is that the first experience could often take eight, 10 years. So you want to be very thoughtful about how you invest in the venture capital ecosystem that you're diversified and that you make sure that you account for things like liquidity, risk, and diversification. Um, I think you've done an amazing service for Guatemala and for Latin America, and not only helping them access this asset class, but helping them asset, access the asset class in a predictable and smoothed out manner. So I want to thank you for jumping on the podcast. And you know, the floor is yours. What would you like uh, our listeners to know about you, Fernando, about Invariantes? about Latin America, anything you'd like to evangelize? Well,
0: thank you. Thank you for having me. Again, it was a pleasure being here. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, just know that our doors are open here. I mean, we're very friendly. If if there's a a company we can help out if there's a u.s company turning their gaze down to latin america and they need a friendly door to knock on please by all means you can just write me an email send me a, a, a message in whatsapp in the very latin american fashion we're we're here for the long run and i hope when we raise our fourth vintage we keep doing this this good work and platforms like yours that, that allow more people to know about what we're doing are, are priceless to us
1: Thank you, Fernando, and I look forward to meeting in New York City and Guatemala. Maybe we meet halfway in Miami, but I look forward to this. uh, It's a new relationship, and I look forward to the friendship, and, and thank you for jumping on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. In order to make sure you do not miss out on next week's episode, please make sure to subscribe below. We thank you for your support.